I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Alan Murray. Alan really needs no introduction to business. He's the CEO of Fortune, overseeing both the business and the editorial operations, and uh, pens a very widely read CEO daily newsletter that I read every day, reflecting often on his regular conversations with CEOs. So really, there's nobody better to talk about the pulse and the evolution of capitalism than Alan. And in fact, he's just written a new book about that called Tomorrow's Capitalist, which came out May 2022 from Public Affairs. Alan discusses the history and the future of what he calls stakeholder capitalism that we'll be delving into a little bit with him. And he has a very optimistic message. He he thinks that all of the forces are in place for a reform or an evolution of capitalism. And again, I look forward to digging into that. So thanks for joining me, Alan. Great to be with you, Martin. Thank you so much for having me. So your book is about stakeholder capitalism. That's a pretty familiar word nowadays, but um, sometimes a little slippery to define. What, What do you mean by stakeholder capitalism? Well, let me answer your question by just telling you a little bit about how I got here, and I'll try and keep it brief. But I'm a lifelong journalist and for a variety of reasons have spent most of my career watching the intersection of business and society and have had many opportunities to talk to business leaders about their jobs and how they do their jobs. And I've, I've always thought of my role as explaining what's going on, not trying to change the world. But what became clear to me over the course of the last decade was business leaders were talking just very differently about how they did their jobs and particularly about their broader responsibilities to society. You know, I I used to talk to Milton Friedman from time to time as a reporter, familiar with his studied economics, familiar with his work and the, the Friedman notion that the social responsibility of business is to make a profit. I understood. I understood the philosophy behind it. But over the course of the last 10 years, I kept hearing more and more CEOs talking about much broader responsibilities to the planet, to their employees, to the communities their employees lived in. And it became clear to me that something profound was happening. And so this book was my attempt to make sense of that. Right. You mentioned that you said you are hearing different things. Were you seeing different things too? I mean, presumably, if you're you're hearing a different message, we can presume that CEOs are sensitive to the need to project those messages, but do you, you see a shift in substance too? Yeah, or, or to ask your question another way, is it all PR bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and look, I, 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 as a lifelong journalist, I'm also a I'm natural skeptic. That's my tribe. That's what we as journalists are, are trained to do. So sure, I was skeptical about the words at first, but a couple of things, you know, you learn pretty quickly I can tell the difference between words that are scripted by a public affairs advisor and are being used to get a message across versus words that reflect something deeper in the thinking of the people running businesses. And, you know, after hundreds of these conversations, it became clear to me it was the second, not the first. And you did see an explosion of kind of speaking out. I would say it started with Mark Benioff when Indiana passed its religious liberties law that was viewed as discriminating against gays. And, and Benioff said, I'm going to stop doing business in Indiana. That was an act, by the way. It wasn't just a, a statement. That was followed by something similar in North Carolina, where Bank of America spoke out. And then over the course of the last six years, you all know the examples, Delta Airlines and the NRA 
the Ken Frazier of Merck and the revolt against President Trump's advisory councils. And then most recently, the statements and actions of companies in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So anyway, bottom line, short answer to your question is yes, it's not. I mean, look at what McDonald's did just today. I went to that McDonald's at Pushkin Square in 1990. Uh, That was a big push for 30 years by McDonald's to build a business in Russia. And they made a decision to leave that business behind because of Martin, you know the history of this. There's never been another example, maybe South African sanctions. There's never been another example in the post-war period of companies doing what they have done absent sanctions. It's interesting the examples you chose because in reading your book, I was asking myself, you said that the forces that are now in place to bring about capitalism 2.0, I was asking myself, what are those forces? And you, you mentioned a number, you know, the climate crisis, COVID, global economic decoupling, growing inequities technology. But actually, most of the examples you just gave were political in nature, a legislature you know, taking a stance on a social issue. Is it more these sort of fundamental issues that are driving this or more these sort of political and social polarization sort of issues that are driving this shift? As I dug deeper into this, I came to the conclusion that it was being driven by fundamental issues, even if it looked political. I mean, Mark Benioff did what he did in reaction to the Indiana Religious Liberties Law, not because he wanted to run for office, but because he had employees who were demanding that he do it, who were really upset. I mean, that's what happened to Bob Chappick in Florida. Bob Chappick didn't want to say anything about the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. He didn't want to talk about it at all. Why did he talk about it? Because his talented, creative employees said, you have to talk about it. You know, you can't let this happen. It's this discriminating against the LGBTQ community and and we support it. So to just back up a step, one of the fundamental forces that is happening here is increasing focus on talent. And I think that ties to the rise of the intangible economy that, that business success today versus 50 years ago has much less to do with physical capital, financial capital, inventory on the shelves, oil on the ground, plant and equipment, much more to do with intangibles, which are much more closely tied to human relationships. And that's fundamental. So it's not playing political games. It's reacting to fundamental changes. So that's less an argument that this generation has special values and more an argument that the creative nature of work demands a different type of individual contribution and therefore talent becomes objectively more important and therefore one has to listen to the social aspirations of talent? Is, is, is that the argument? I think it's both. I think it's both. I mean, look, I've had the opportunity to ask literally hundreds of CEOs. You know, the first thing I did as a journalist when I started hearing people talk this way, I said, why are you doing this? And There are multiple answers, but the first answer always was because my employees want me to. That was the number one answer. And so if you dissect that, what you see is, first of all, companies are much more dependent on their talent than they were in the past. And the so-called great resignation we're going through right now is a heightened example of that, but but it's a heightened example of what is a long-term trend. But second, I do think there's a generational difference. Martin, I've looked at data on this. I spent a couple of years running the Pew Research Center. As you know, we did a lot of research into the millennial generation. And what defines that generation is they are slower to get married, 
They are less likely to belong to an organized church or religion. They're much less likely to join a Rotary Club or a Moose Club or any of the social clubs. And what you realize is that their employer has become their principal formal connection to society. And that resonates with me. I mean, if I look at my father, leave me out of the equation. I look at my father, who was a a child of the Depression. He went to work to make money. There was no question about it. If he wanted to do good in the world, he would go to his church or go to the Rotary Club or go through other organizations. But work was about making money. I look at my children. They have very different attitudes. They want the money. No question about that. But they have much higher expectations of their employer expecting to work for a place that is doing good in the world. Interesting. So, so you're saying in the sense we, we may bowl alone, but we, we still work together and therefore work becomes Correct. proportionately more personally important. And I see that very clearly when I compare my children to my father, but I also see it in the data that we gathered at the Pew Research Center. So we, we seem to be making progress there, not just progress in uh, messaging and sincerity, but action. I guess we could ask, are we making sufficient progress? Because we have some, some pretty tough collective action problems to face, namely uh, climate change, species depletion, growing inequality and the like. And um, in your book, you talk about, uh, in the final chapter, you talk about three blind spots of executive pay, contract workers and, and taxes. Tell us about those blind spots and, and the prospects for them being addressed. Well, there are a whole bunch of questions that you asked in that question, Martin. and so. The first one was, are we moving Are we moving fast enough? So I definitely believe the movement is real. If you look at what's happening on climate, for instance, we can go into this in more detail. It's pretty extraordinary, particularly in the last year, the kind of change in behavior that these climate commitments are driving. So they are real. But then if you ask, is it happening fast enough? I think on the climate front, it's pretty clear it's not happening fast enough. Another area that a lot of the CEOs I talk to care about a great deal is the seeming lack of mobility, of opportunity for disadvantaged people in society. The rising tide that lifts all boats doesn't seem to be working the way it has in the past. I think there are a number of CEOs, I can cite examples that have come up with very creative programs, not just to supply themselves with labor, but to try and address this problem. Are they doing enough? Not yet. No, definitely. Can business do this on its own? Can business reach the kind of scale we need to address these problems on its own? Probably not. It would certainly be helpful to have a functioning government that could partner with business. Nevertheless, I think it's a movement in the right direction. And so then to your second question, I'm sorry, what was the second question now? I got hung up on the first. Uh, well, I was asking about the, the three particular things you list as blind spots in your final chapter. In other words, what are the issues that are impeding progress or where there's insufficient progress? Taxes is a great issue. I mean, if you think about the business roundtable, for instance, which in August of 2019, before the pandemic, put out its statement that said businesses have to pay attention to a diversity of, of stakeholders who in that statement were on equal footing with shareholders. And I think that has changed the business roundtable's approach to a lot of issues like minimum wage, et cetera. But the tax issue, I mean, these companies and the business roundtable itself have spent decades building up a machine in Washington designed to absolutely minimize any taxes on business. And you've seen the taxation of business, effective taxation of business drop steadily over the course of decades. 
I don't think they're applying the same thinking to those tax questions. If as a CEO, you're truly going to think about your business's impact on society, paying your fair share of taxes is one of the most important things you have to think about. And I think that gets segregated. It's like, how do we minimize taxes as much as possible? I don't think that's consistent with the stakeholder approach to running a company. I had, I, I, I won't identify this person, but I had the, a conversation with the lead of one of the big four firms who said to me that they actually have companies coming to them today for the first time in their hundred and something history on tax questions, asking them not just, is this legal, but is this right? Is this the right thing for us to do? Because they understand, it's not just because they're good people, they also understand that trust is becoming increasingly important to business. And if you're going to maintain trust, you have to ask that question, is this right? So I don't think it's the majority of companies, but the fact that there are some leaders out there who are now saying in their tax departments, we don't just want to ask, is it legal for us to take this tax treatment? But is it the right thing for us to do? Suggests that we, we are moving in the direction of a different approach. So in, in the competition of ideas for the future of capitalism, I think there are many different philosophers. You know, there are sort of essentially market-based philosophers of pricing and externalities. There's, uh, you know, the cult of ESG and ESG measurement. There's a call for a stronger government, the return of the role of government. There's you know, a school of thought that says it's all about a declared purpose and implementing a declared purpose. Why do you choose to, to use the umbrella term stakeholder capitalism? And, and does it, in a sense, incorporate all of these things or is, or is there some essential difference? No, I use the, the word stakeholder capitalism as an umbrella term to incorporate everything you just mentioned. I think they're all part of the same trend and you can call it what you want to call it. But this is a very different leadership world for the leaders of large organizations than Jack Welch inhabited 20 years ago. There's a new book coming out on Jack Welch, and I was just reading, I got an early copy of it and was reading it and was, I think anyone reading it would be struck how differently he thought about these issues than the leaders of today think about them. So uh, I think many companies or most Fortune 500 companies are doing some of what you, you talk about as needs being done. They have a purpose statement. They have a declared net zero target. They have a sustainability report. They may be members of an organization like the UN Global Compact. And their CEOs may be increasingly talking about, with sincerity, these, these collective issues. But thinking about the average company, I know you speak to many CEOs, what's, what's missing from that equation? What are, the, what are the actions to drive even more impact or to drive the agenda forward? I think what's missing is clear metrics, which become the tool of accountability. I mean, look, Shareholder capitalism, we spent over 100 years developing it. We have the big four accounting firms that know how to measure it. Everybody understands return to shareholders. They can, they can measure it very accurately and precisely. Nobody knows how to measure returns to stakeholders. And we're just at the very, very early days of figuring out how to do that. There's a, been a lot of activity in the last year or two around the sustainability metrics. And of course, now you have the SEC out there calling on companies to disclose the way they're measuring and holding themselves accountable on sustainability. I think all the big four accounting firms, as well as the consulting firms, are 
are working with companies to come up with ways to do that. But until you have a set of agreed upon metrics that you can use to determine the difference between somebody who's taking it seriously and somebody who's just making a commitment for show, it's going to be hard for this to reach its full potential. Yes. And what's your read on the, uh, on the best contribution or the, the most promising ideas on, on that debate? Because it's a very problematic area. I mean, there's science that shows that the more metrics you have, the more you can appear to meet some of them. You, you essentially increase the possibility of the op- optics of success without necessarily addressing yeah, choose, choose your own metric. Yes. Yeah, it's a, we live at the moment when it comes to stakeholders in a choose your own metric world. Again, we spent 100 years trying to minimize that in financial reporting. We still haven't totally succeeded. There's a fair amount of funny business that goes on in corporate accounting statements, but at least there's a set of rules and a set of agreed upon measures and people know how to read it. And it's going to take a while for us to get to the same place around sustainability or human capital metrics, but we're clearly moving in that direction. My guess is I mean, the SEC has already put out this massive, I read the, I don't know if you tried to read the 500 page rule that the SEC put out on sustainability metrics. I suspect in the next few years, they'll put out a similar rule on human capital. I find that there's actually fairly broad support in both the investment community and the business community for trying to do something in this area because of the thing you just cited. It's not real until we have some agreed upon metrics and standards for evaluating those metrics. So I think there will be progress in this area. And I don't think there's any going back, by the way. I guess a really fundamental problem, most fundamental problem here is that for truly collective problems where success depends upon not just what I do and what I measure, but it depends upon what we both do and what we both do collaboratively. And what I do affects what you need to do. If I start making my cars of of aluminium, that may mean lighter cars, less fuel consumption, and a better footprint for me, but it may impose greater energy intensity on your, on your metal production. And so in a sense, it's like the problem of trying to measure collaboration. You can't measure both sides of a collaboration. You have to measure the whole collaboration. So how do you think about the collective action problem aspect of this? Right. So from an economist standpoint, and I, I studied, you know, my master's degree is in economics. I studied economics from an economist standpoint the way you deal with those kinds of externalities is with public policy. I mean, a, a carbon tax would be a great, to stick with the environmental example, a carbon tax would be a great way to address it. But look, one of the things that is driving the current movement among businesses is the fact that government has failed so hugely. You know, I've had CEOs say to me, we have to do this because, because the government's doing nothing. I mean, the Brexit vote And the crazy election in the U.S. where you had Donald Trump on one side and a socialist seeming, Bernie Sanders seeming to take all the energy on the other side, is a big part of what prompted businesses to say, hey, we have to address these things because government isn't. And they're existential in the long term. If we don't address them, then we will lose our operating license and cease to exist. So so I do think while government intervention might in a theoretical world be a better way to deal with these externalities doesn't seem to be working very well in the real world. But the second thing about the environment piece of it that I've seen in the last couple of years, it's pretty striking, is that by defining your responsibilities as a large company, not just to your own emissions and not even just to your own power consumption, but to what the so-called scope three 
emissions of your suppliers and your customers kind of freaks people out saying, how can I possibly be responsible for the actions of my customers? But it's also having some really positive effects. You know, when Walmart starts to work with its suppliers saying, hey, we have this net zero commitment that we're serious about and we're not going to meet it if you don't become part of this effort. That's pretty powerful. We had a conversation at Fortune last year with the Soren Sku, who is the, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, but he's the CEO of Moeller Maersk, the big shipping company. And he had just made a sizable investment, a very large investment. I don't remember the exact number, but you talk about actions. This is a good example. In wind farms in the North Sea to be used to power hydrogen plants that would create fuel to power his ships. And I said to him, why are you doing this? What I always say. And he said, well, I'm doing this because once a week now, I get a call from people who are shipping things on my ships who say, hey, I just made this net zero commitment that requires me to get the carbon out of my shipping within the next 10 or 15 years. What are you going to do about that? And so he's feeling the pressure from his customers to meet the scope three requirements of the commitments they're making. Another example was the CEO of Freeport McMoran, a, a mining company, who said outright to me in a conversation last year, you know, we've been doing these ESG statements for 10 years and I never paid any attention to them, but I'm paying attention to them now. And I said, why are you paying attention? He said, because my customers are demanding that I do it. I have to, because they've all made commitments and part of their commitment requires me to meet certain standards. So, so I think as more and more of the, the biggest companies take this seriously, the rest of the economy kind of has to fall in line. The scope three requirement makes it impossible for you to say, we'll just do the clean stuff and we'll sell all the dirty stuff off to someone else. So if I can ask you a more personal question, Alan, I know you're a man of uh, faith. You organized a meeting at the, the Vatican to discuss these issues amongst uh, business leaders. Are we talking today about, and in your book, about essentially issues of enlightened self-interest, or are we, is there an ethical dimension? Is there some sense in which we go beyond economics and we, we, we should do these things because they're the right thing to do? It's a really great question, Martin. And again, I come at this more as an observer than as a true believer. But what we're talking about is making business more human, right? I mean, in a way, the history of the 20th century was about making people be better machines. <laughs> I mean, that's what scientific management was all about. That's what the great, you know, great car companies, the great accomplishments of the 20th century were when we got people to act like cogs in a machine. And the 21st century, it's clear to me, is going to be about making business more human. It's much more dependent on people and fully engaging their skills, their minds, their hopes, their needs, their aspirations, and their morality. You know, I subtitled my book, My Search for the Soul of Business. I think it's fair to say, you tell me, I think it's fair to say 10 years ago, I wouldn't have found anybody in the business world who would talk to me about the soul of business. But I find a lot of people now, I can quote CEOs who say, look, we are a human organization. As a human organization, we have to have values. And I think that means, I think that means we have a soul. I, I, I agree, Alan. I it is, in a sense, quite interesting that Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune, can use the word soul on, on the cover of a book. And, <laughs> and I just wrote a piece uh, called, Can Management Be Beautiful? And so this sort of return of humanism to business, 
That's I right. think 10 years ago would have seemed extremely out of place and extremely improbable, but, but now it seems like a reasonable conversation. I think that's right. And I don't think that's a, a short-term fad. I think it is a, a directional change about the humanization of business. Martin, let me go back one more time. You know these numbers, but I, it's just such a shocking change that I think it's worth citing. There was a study that was done of, of the balance sheets of Fortune 500 companies. And when you looked at the balance sheets of Fortune 500 companies in the 1970s, what you would see is that more than 80% of the value came from physical stuff. It was plant, it was equipment, it was oil in the ground, inventory on the shelves, all the things that capitalism of the 20th century was designed to support. And you needed vast amounts of capital to buy all that stuff. And so it made perfect sense that you would focus on the returns to that capital. You do the same exercise today, and more than 85% of the value on the balance sheets, you know this, is intangibles. It's intellectual property, it's software, it's the emotional connection to your consumers that's encapsulated in your brand. Those are all things that are tied to people. They're tied to human beings. And so business is becoming much more human. It's becoming much more personal. That's a long-term trend and it's not going to go away. Yeah, and I guess an alternative interpretation of that fact, which I, I agree is stunning, a huge change, is that it's to do with the rise of business ecosystems and the, and the new possibility of not necessarily owning all of the assets that you need to deploy and instead of having them tapping into the assets and capabilities of others. But it makes the same essential point, I guess, that it's about, it's about collaboration. You could say it's about trust. It's about trust and collaboration. Yeah. I mean, you think about that word trust and what does it take to maintain trust between people, whether it's trust with your employees or trust with your consumers or trust with your business partners. That's another thing that's forcing that more humanistic approach to how we do these things. So uh, unfortunately, uh, our time is nearly up. But let me ask you one more broader question going well beyond your book, if I may. I guess we're both paid in different ways to, to spot the, the next big thing, to codify the next big thing. What do you think is the most important but underappreciated, undiscussed trend in business that you see? What's the thing that you think you'll be writing more about in a, a year or two's time, say? That's an interesting question that I'd like a little more time to ponder. I mean, I think in the, in the, in the short term, unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with a, the business cycle. And I think a lot of these broader questions are going to be under a bit of a cloud as we wrestle with the effects of the business cycle. But I do think in the long term, I, I tried to say the unfinished business. I do think if we are building more humanistic businesses and a, a business structure that's more centered around that, one of the things that has to happen is that we think more about things like taxation and CEO pay, where the fact that it, it may make sense to shareholders, but it doesn't seem right to a whole bunch of other stakeholders has to be considered. And, and then, and I wouldn't say this is underappreciated, but I, I think the U.S.-China relationship becomes a huge question mark for the world to wrestle with, because if businesses have values, how do you deal with two systems based on such completely different value systems? I think that's, that's an unanswered challenge for the future of business and the future of the world. Indeed. Well, it's, it's great talking to you, Alan, about your book and beyond. So thanks for joining me. Thank you, Martin. It's a great pleasure. I'd love to continue the conversation. Absolutely. So we've been talking to Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune, about his new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, 
which just came out in May 2022, which I'd strongly recommend as a, as a great current and very concrete survey based upon his interactions with CEOs about this shift in the emphasis of capitalism, this evolution of, of capitalism. I think an essential read for anyone who wants to understand the broader social and political and ethical context of business. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we welcome feedback. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you.